Today's Parenting Great Kids podcast is brought to you by Life on the Fast Track podcast. From Slate, in collaboration with Ford, comes the new podcast, Life on the Fast Track. Cheer on three Girl Scouts as they design, build, and race wooden cars in the Ford Girls Fast Track races. We'll meet their families, use power tools, and hear what happens when girls are empowered to put STEAM principles to the test. Download and subscribe to Life on the Fast Track wherever you get your podcasts. And by GoGo Squeeze for a healthy and delicious snack that lets your kids explore, play, and be their best. You've got to try GoGo Squeeze. GoGo Squeeze made from 100% all natural fruit with no artificial anything. Nothing but orchard fresh apples and other wholesome fruit, all in a squeezable pouch that's ready to go wherever they go. There are over 25 tasty varieties kids will love and that you can feel great about too. And friends, I give them to my grandkids. Go-Go Squeeze, fruit on the go pouches. Find them in the applesauce aisle today. For 30 plus years, I've seen every type of child grow up. Instead of giving me what I wanted, she gave me what I needed, which was truth. Don't let emotions win. Let truth win. Do your very best, and you should have a lot of fun while you do it. And the better you get at something, the more fun you're going to have at something. You moms and dads are wired with everything you need to be a parent to a great kid. Welcome to Parenting Great Kids. This is episode number 48. Boy, I can't believe we've done 48 podcasts so far. I'm Dr. Meg Meeker, and today we're going to be talking about connecting better with your kids. My guest is scholar and lecturer Nathan Rittenhouse. And ladies and gentlemen, you cannot miss what this young man has to say. He's one of the most articulate lecturers I've ever heard. In this episode, I'll be featuring a listener question about a mom whose kids didn't give her gifts at Christmas time, and she's wondering whether or not she should say anything to them. As always, I'll share my points to ponder for you to start using right away. And parents, as a reminder, don't just download episodes, click subscribe. When you do that, you're joining my parenting revolution and every new episode will automatically show up in your subscribed list. You won't regret it. And remember, we'd love for you to write us a review on iTunes and let us know what you think about the podcast. Also, not only are we on iTunes, but the Parenting Great Kids podcast is also available in the Google Play Store and on Stitcher. So no matter where you get your podcasts, subscribe today and don't miss a single episode. Here now are my points to ponder. One, write a family mission statement and share it with your kids. Have you ever thought about that? This is something that we do in our uh, medical office. We have a medical mission statement and all the doctors ascribe to the statement. Here is our purpose in coming together. Your kids need to grow up with a sense of belonging. Kids want to know that they're part of a bigger unit. Letting them know that they belong in your family, that you have a shared identity as part of your family, gives them a tremendous sense of security, and it also gives them an identity. They believe that they belong to something that they make the family unit run, that you're they're working together with you to reach a common goal, and that gives them a, a great sense of security and belonging. 
Take the time to sit down with your spouse. If you're a single parent, do it alone and write down what you believe. Try to do it in one sentence if you can. You know, whenever I am going to write a book, my publisher always says, tell me in one sentence what the purpose of this book is. So in one sentence, if you can, write down what the mission statement, what the goal of your family is. And then when you, when you write that down, if you need to do two or three sentences, that's okay. Sit your kids down and talk to them about it. Talk to them about what it is that you as a family want to accomplish. How do you intend on doing that? And then ask your kids, what do you think about this? How can you participate as a brother or a sister or a daughter or a son? In helping our family accomplish this goal, how do you want to behave and how do you think the kids should speak and ask them what their feelings and their thoughts are. Ask them to write down what they can do to help your family accomplish that mission. Um, ask them what their expectations of you are, what their expectations of their siblings are and what their expectations of themselves are and Ask them not only to write them down, but to discuss them with you and their siblings. Make your mission statement very simple. You can say something as simple as, our family exists to love one another, respect each of the members, and to serve the community around us. Or you can be very specific with your mission statement. You can say, our family exists to always support encourage and love one another, to think of others before ourselves, and to be respectful to one another. Our goal is to work together first to love one another, and then to love others outside of our family by helping and serving them. Can you imagine the good that you can do in your neighborhood, in your schools, in your community, if you and your kids and your spouse Live with a family mission statement and, and, and imagine if you grew up in a family where your parents sat you down and said, you son or daughter are part of a loving, committed unit that exists to help you and help your siblings get through life, but we exist also for a greater good. We exist because we as a unit are about the business of accomplishing something wonderful together that is bigger than who we are as a family. Imagine how your identity would have taken shape and grown and how much strength you would have drawn from the sense that you are part of a group that has a bigger mission than just getting by in life. As Nathan says, having a shared identity and meaning gives kids a deeper sense of self, belonging, respect, and love. Point to ponder number two, share experiences with your kids. You know, when you think about it, now that kids have cell phones and iPads, they go off to school, they have sports activities, they go off and do things with their friends. Many of our kids live in their own worlds that are very separate from us. This is very different from the way I grew up. My parents knew pretty much everything I was doing because nobody had cell phones. I didn't have my own world. I couldn't live in my own world. If somebody called the house and wanted to talk to me, they had to endure either one of my parents or a sibling who answered the phone and said, yes, I'll go get Meg. She's up in her room. But this ability to live in your own world 
is a product of life with electronics, really, because kids can do things that are private that really shouldn't be private. And in many ways, this is not very healthy for our kids because kids live with a sense of autonomy and of functioning very independently from other members in the family. And this isn't always good. It causes kids to feel very lonely, primarily for two reasons. First, kids feel disconnected from ones whom they believe are supposed to love them the most. So electronics and phones and friendships and sports is good as many of those things can be, cause kids to live very autonomously from their family unit. And this isn't good because kids live feeling very disconnected from their siblings and from their parents. And when kids feel disconnected at too early of an age, 8, 10, even 15, they feel lonely and they feel very ill-equipped to live so independently. When they feel disconnected, they feel they can't depend on their parents or their siblings who are their natural support system, and they fail to have their fundamental needs for security and love met. And again, a lot of this sort of just falls into place as a byproduct of the way they live, which is quite separate from their parents. Second, when kids feel they're disconnected from their family, they lack a sense of authentic relationship experience. Spending time on screens makes kids feel connected when they're texting or they're um, they're involved in uh, social networking. Even if they're playing video games with their friends, they feel they're connecting, but there's a lack of authenticity there. And you know exactly what I'm talking about, that not having that family face-to-face communication, eye contact. You can't hear the inflection in someone's voice. You can't see a sad or disappointed expression on their face when you say something that's hurtful to their feelings. So that lack of authenticity um, in relationships that are had through a screen or through a phone make kids feel even lonelier. There's a false sense of intimacy, if you will. The problem is kids can't put their finger on it because they don't understand why they're feeling so lonely and they don't understand why they're feeling empty because they don't recognize, oh, I'm not in authentic relationship or, oh, I'm, I'm living too independently from my parents and I'm not ready for this. That's why I'm feeling so lonely. So it's really important that you as a mom or dad make sure that you have experiences as a family that you share with your kids. This means you have to do stuff with them. You don't have to do expensive stuff. You don't have to do fancy stuff. You don't have to do uh, super duper entertaining stuff, but you need to have shared experiences, share chores with them, share cooking with them, um, share raking the yard with them, share breakfast with them every Saturday morning, share going to church with them, share serving at a soup kitchen once a month with them. Share experiences with your kids. It's one of the most powerful ways you can combat the loneliness that comes from living in isolation that so many of our kids do. Third, tell your kids why they're alive. Something as basic as answering one of the most profound existential questions that every person alive has and every child has why am I alive? You know, 
fourth graders, second graders, sixth graders, seniors in high school go off to school every morning thinking, why am I here? Why am I going to school? Why should I bother studying? And questions that we overlook because we think, oh, they're too basic. Kids don't think about them. Of course they do. Share with their kids what the meaning and value of their life is. Why are they alive? You know, we sign our kids up for so much stuff. We farm our kids out. We give up time with our kids and and let coaches take over. Ballet teachers and piano teachers and school teachers and Boy Scout leaders and Girl Scout leaders and, and, and teachers in some of the best schools that we find in the country. But we forget to tell our kids why they're alive. Don't do that. Believe it or not, even very young children can wrap their minds around this question that they are born, that they were created by God for a very deep purpose, and that purpose is great, and that your job as a parent is to help them find that purpose that you don't really know what it is, but it is there. They are here to love and to care for and to nurture other people, to love and be loved and to serve other people in a very specific and unique way. Three-year-olds can comprehend that. Draw a picture for Auntie Susan who's in the hospital because she needs to feel loved today and you, child, can express that love to her. So don't let your kids down. Teach them why they're alive. Tell them why they're alive. Let them know that their life is not an accident. They have a unique personality. They have unique skills. And that they were created by a God who has a great plan for their lives. They will be wondering about deep questions like, why am I alive? And they will question what happens after life. Usually you'll notice kids will start this around second grade when they start to wonder what happens when my pet bird dies or a dog dies or grandma dies. They really begin to grapple with existential questions. So make sure that you're the one who answers these questions because they are going to have them. Don't let them get random answers from their peers who think like they do. Give them your thoughts. Give them your beliefs and teach them your feelings. Friends, doing this is no small task and it demands that you will need to do some soul searching first. So do that. That's why these podcasts are not to your kids, they're to you, because you have the power in your kids' lives, friends, not me. I can go and I can talk to your kids about why they shouldn't have sex and when they're in high school and why getting pregnant when you're 16 is not a good idea or, you know, what the meaning of their life is, but it lasts for a couple of days. But you are the ones who have the power to change who your kids become. They're listening and they're waiting for answers today. They're waiting for answers. So listen, re-listen to this podcast with Nathan Rittenhouse and listen to how he teaches us how to answer the big questions that our kids have. Kids grapple with questions, so please be there to answer the big questions and allow your kids to take you deeper. 
Parents, we all know that talking with our kids about sex is uncomfortable. And when it comes to having that initial talk with your child about sex when they're about eight years old, I always say in every couple, there's one who's a chicken and one who's an even bigger chicken who just won't have the talk at all. But the truth is, no matter how uncomfortable it is, beginning a conversation about sex early with your child is extremely important because it puts you in the driver's seat. The tricky part is many parents often don't know where to begin or where to end. What if they say the wrong thing? What if they talk too much or too little or use the wrong words? Too often not knowing how or when they should approach the topic of sex with their child, many parents just don't do it. And then this leaves your child at the hands of the culture or his friends to teach him about sex. I have created a digital toolkit just for you called How to Have the Talk with your child. It walks you through the process of having that initial conversation with your child about sex. The toolkit's packed with a variety of resources and all the information you need to get ready to have that initial conversation, including ages and stages chart to help you determine when to have the talk with your child. There's an ebook on talking to your child about sex, a script to help guide you through the discussion. And for those of you who are really, really chicken, you're the big chicken, it even includes a video of me giving the talk directly to your child. How easy is that? Talking to your child about sex doesn't need to be intimidating or scary. It can be really a great experience and it'll help you establish a strong relationship with your child. I'm excited to offer you how to have the talk with your child toolkit for 20 to 0% off. Just go to my website, megmeekermd.com, click on parenting resources and user code TALKPODCAST when you check out. Parents, this topic about sex is far too important to hand over to somebody else to talk to your kids about. You need to do it. Go to my website, check out how to have the talk with your child toolkit, 20% off. You need to stay in the driver's seat when it comes to talking to your kids about sex, and I'm here to help. So parents... Thanks for listening. This is episode number 48. Stay with us. Well, Nathan, thank you so much for joining me today on this podcast. Well, it's really a pleasure for me to be here and to chat with you. Thank you. You know, uh, I know that you speak to parents around the world on issues like the meaning of life, and people respond very well to your messages, which is extraordinary because you go in and you talk about very deep issues, and you do so from a Christian perspective. Why do you think students respond so well to your messages? Well, you're certainly right there that students are the primary age group that I'm speaking to, but then parents often quickly uh, perk up and say, hey, here's somebody engaging our young people on these ideas. What can we glean from that? And I, I believe that one of the issues here is really comes down to our pace of life. And most of the questions that we ask as adults come down to uh, how and what type ah. questions. So, uh, you know, what am I going to have for dinner? What am I going to make for dinner? To how am I going to get the kids to soccer practice on time? They're how and what type questions. And rarely do we slow down and ask why. Yes. Why am I doing this in the first place? And so when I come along and kind of challenge and push back and say, hey, why are you doing this? And, and you ask those why questions, it really provides a space for people to uh, ponder and restructure and format and say, hey, that's, that's a, a question worth thinking about. Why am I doing this and, and what does my life mean? Because ultimately, as humans, we are meaning-making and meaning-seeker uh, creatures. So uh, we, we want that. But it's also interesting that in our time, we live in a, if you go for a, 
a completely naturalistic perspective here. There was a student at MIT once that asked me as I was speaking on uh, concepts of meaning. He said, well, why would you even ask why questions? And it's a bit of a funny question. <laughs> why would you ask why? But wild. It's, wild, yeah. Yeah, but it's not in the sense that if if you live in a framework of the world that things just are what they are, it is what it is, then there isn't really a reason to look for meaning and push beyond that. And so to come along and say, hey, actually, we can talk about this, and this is actually a category that as humans we want to seek uh, and speak into, people jump on board there because we do have a sense that our lives are so st- supposed to have a purpose and that we do matter in this world. Yeah. You know, Nathan, I love your approach, asking parents why and asking students why, because you know, you and I are parenting a generation apart. I'm a grandparent. You have three small children. And a lot of times I sit in my office and I hear parents talking about what their kids do. And I see parents bringing their kids who are exhausted and they all think they have anemia and sleep disorders and chronic fatigue syndrome. And I listen to their schedules and I think, well, there's the problem. Your child sleeps five hours a night because he's doing so many things. And I find myself asking parents, why are you doing that? But the thing that's intriguing to me, and you point this out in your lectures too, is that no one asks, why do we do what we do? And a lot of parents will look at me and say, well, I do this with my kids because this is what I'm supposed to do. This is what you do in modern America. Your kids play two sports every semester. They play one instrument proficiently. They have to get straight A's. They have to do this. They spend very little time with their kids, and yet they've got them on this crazy train, I call it, this frenetic pace, but they don't know where the train is taking them, but they're afraid to get off. But they're not asking, why are we doing what we're doing? Why don't they ask? Well, there certainly is a lot of social pressure involved, and we often think of peer pressure being just a teenager issue, but let's face it, as adults, we have uh, expectations that we believe culture puts on us, too, about what we should be doing with our children. There could be a, a sense in which we don't ask why, or perhaps we're overly busy because we're hiding from asking ourselves why. And so instead of seeking the bigger questions of meaning, we distract ourselves intentionally from wrestling with some of the bigger existential questions about what it means to be human and to be a parent and a father, mother, child, um, that there's something comforting because we know how to do soccer practice. We don't know how to do uh, self-analysis and uh, self-psychology. So we're all sort of living at the the lowest common denominator anyway. We're almost automated, and I guess Mm -hmm. that bothers me. So let's turn and talk about deeper questions in life and where our culture has come to. You have described our culture as one without boundaries, truth, faith, God, or soul. Um, Can you expound on that a little bit? Because I think that's very important for parents to understand, particularly if they're going to begin asking why questions of their kids and dig deeper with their kids. Sure. So the the idea that we're moving into a situation where there are no foundations, we talk about a nihilistic culture where we move away from any meaning boundary, whether that's religion or cultural, is that what you're left with is essentially yourself. Mm -hmm. And so we quickly move into a me culture where the world is is all about me. And so the impact that that has on us, setting ourselves up as as the purpose of everything actually isn't that lasting. And there was a lady who wrote a book called Strong Fathers, Strong Daughters. I don't know if you've heard of her. Um, <laughs> Thank you very Dr. much. <laughs> but I, I read that book because I'm interested as a young daughter. And there's a, a, a page here that I earmarked that 
when you talk about the difference between a princess and a pioneer, I don't know if you remember that, mm-hmm. but um, this idea that we're moving toward a, a princess I culture. Do. Yeah, and that we, we think of princesses as spoiled, and we teach them, hey, you deserve all the best that life has to offer. But then you go on to say, you know what? These are people that end up being depressed when they don't get you know the best out of life. They end up being self-centered if they're just focused on their needs and wants. And, and then there's a line here you said um, that their lives often end up becoming narrow, and their search for the best that life has to offer is hopeless because there will always be something better just out of reach. Mm-hmm. And uh, I think that describes it very well. Put a plug in for your book at the same time of just saying when we approach this idea of there being no boundaries, which actually the fastest way that we feel like we gain freedom is to cast off boundaries and cast off responsibility. The thing is, when we cast off uh, boundaries and responsibility, we also cast off meaning and purpose because you can't have meaning and purpose without responsibility. So there's a, a, a desire for a quick fix here, I think, that ultimately doesn't uh, sustain itself in the long run. Do you suppose that a lot of that is driven from a sense that parents don't want to impose boundaries, they may not want to speak truth, or teach their kids to understand truth and dig deeper because they want their kids happy and they don't want conflict in their life and they feel the best way to kind of keep their kids happy is just kind of keep meeting that sense of, you know, as long as my child is pleased and as long as there's no conflict on a relationship and as long as they do well in school and on the soccer team, life is good. Because when you talk about parenting in boundaries and you talk about parenting and, and really what, I'm, what I was going at, which you picked up on beautifully in the book is, look, we need to teach our kids to work. We need to teach our kids the value of hard work and life and not just hand them things. And I think that we do a huge disservice to our kids when we say, you know, you don't really need these rules. There isn't truth outside of you. You really don't have to worry about, you know, worshiping God because God's a nice guy and he'll he'll understand if you don't want to pay any attention to him. I think that, you know, obviously that leads kids down a path of tremendous emptiness. Mm-hmm. But there's a fight to not parent that way and to instill boundaries and truth in kids. Do you find that kids want it as you're out there speaking to them, boundaries and truth and faith? Absolutely. And I think we're, we've talked about living in a postmodern culture, but we're soon trending back to a post-postmodern culture where people have recognized we've tried this no boundaries thing and it really hasn't worked out for us. One of the things that's interesting I find about boundaries when we talk about parenting and, and rules and that sort of thing is that Boundaries are meant to work in two ways. It's not just to keep something in. It's also to protect from something. And so if you think of a, you know, a pasture of sheep where you can say, well, this fence is uh, repressing and suppressing the sheep's freedom. Actually, the fence is there to keep all the things that would like to eat the sheep out. And so when we talk about a boundary in parenting, it's not about uh, you know, quenching curiosity and limiting freedom. It's saying these boundaries are put in place actually for your flourishing. And we have to come back to this idea of authority and say, as a parent, do I know what's best for my child mm-hmm. um, compared to what they think is best for them? And so I think that's the role there as we see an authority gives us a different perspective and a teaching that boundaries are really for our benefit, um, not, to, not to repress us. Yes. One of the things that I find with parents is a sense that they feel they don't have the right or they don't have 
I don't know if it's the courage. I, I will just say they feel they don't have the right to teach their kids boundaries, to teach their kids about faith and about God, because they say they don't. They want their child to choose. They want their child to figure out who God is and come to a realization of faith on their own. They want their kids to want um, boundaries and to want truth, but that never really happens. Why do you suppose it is that young parents feel they they can't impose boundaries and they don't have the right to teach their kids about God and truth in our culture? Well, and there there are two parts to that. And one of those, I've, I've often heard parents say, well, you know, when I was that age, this is my experience. I went through that. So how can I in good conscience tell my kid not to do this when, you know, I know that I did it? Um, and it's not just that we should, I think we have, yeah, I think we, you should say we do have a moral obligation to teach our children things that are going to uh, save them from a lot of hurt and harm and heartache. And people say, well, you're sheltering your children. Well, from some things maybe, but I'm hopefully sheltering them from a lot of brokenness and destruction and pain that will happen further in their lives. So I think it's it's just not thinking of clearly about the way that knowledge actually works and transferred. The person with the most experience does have the authority in a conversation. And so uh, when I think about being, you know, 25 years older than my children, it's not that I'm saying I have more value than you as a human. It's just saying, hey, I've been traveling around the sun for 25 more years. And I know that if you do this, this is going to happen. And I can save you a lot of heartache if you want to listen to this. And so there's that sense just from the experience of it. But then also, if we think of it from a worldview perspective, that children are a gift to us, and they're something to be stewarded, um, and taken care of and grown for a certain purpose, then we really do see that we have a responsibility to form a little citizen, uh, a little person who's going to grow up and contribute to the society and the community and the world around us. And so it's something we do with anticipation is to teach them the rules of engagement for functioning well in this world. Now, as far as it comes to, you know, well, I want them to discover and figure this out. I teach my children to eat cereal with a spoon. Um, not because you can't eat your cereal with a fork, but because a spoon is much easier. And so if some point in life they want to eat their cereal yeah. with a fork, they can. But I'm saying, hey, out of my experience, this is the best way to eat cereal. You can experience with some other ways in the future. But I think at the end of the day, when you come back around, I want you to have the vocabulary and I want you to have the tools of knowing this is how you solve this type of problem. And I know that uh, at RZIM, a lot of what you do is you equip young people to think and make decisions, but you have to give them tools in order to begin to think and make decisions. As a parent, you're a parent, you have three kids. What do you feel maybe are your biggest challenges that you have or other parents face when it comes to raising kids that you want to have strong character and a strong faith? Mm. Yeah, I think, again, this comes back to an issue of time. And I remember when my daughter was, our first child was born, I came across a statistic that said, on average, um, a young person spends seven minutes a day with their father. Yeah. And I thought, oh, man, I do not want to be that that father, but it can quickly happen. And the reason that that is interesting to look at the time segment is because of the amount of competing voices that happen in our world, uh, whether it's through our educational systems or just marketing, our entertainment. There are so many voices calling out and saying, this is what's right, this is what's wrong, this is what's true. And so I think the, the challenge for us as parents is to recognize that we may not, even though we spend a lot of hours under the same roof together, we may not have the majority of the time as far as it goes to influencing our children and how to think about character 
character formation and, and issues of faith. So that would be one, would be the timing of it and the nature of living in a world where we have so many competing voices. The second one, I think, is connecting the dots. There are things that I do in my life that I assume that my children pick up on uh, and understand why I do them. And that's not necessarily true. I need to be much more uh, open about you know, I, I'm choosing to spend my money this way because this is something that I believe in deeply, or I'm choosing to take time to serve this person because this is a big part of how I view the world and what I think God wants me to do. So I need to be more open and talking about this is what I believe, and therefore this is how it impacts every single category of my life. We tend to compartmentalize things into work, entertainment, mm-hmm. family, uh, vacation, and we don't let those overlap. And so I think having a strong character and a sense of faith helps us connect the dots between all of those categories um, and does it in a way that we're clearly communicating that we're living lives of integrity. Yeah. And people have said, hey, we're living in a post-truth world. And I would say, no, we still care about truth, but perhaps we feel that we live in a post-integrity world um, where we just expect people to be inconsistent. And so one of the challenges for me as a parent is to live a consistent life of this is what I believe and this is what I do. And I want to make that evident to my children in every single aspect of my life. You're absolutely right. And kids need that. And they love that. One of the things that I find is a lot of times parents are very wishy-washy about that. Well, perhaps it's because they're wishy-washy about what they really believe and why they should teach their kids that and why they should tell their kids how they're spending their money and why they're spending their money or why they're uh, once a week they go to the neighbors and they mow the neighbor's lawn because, you know, she's a shut-in or something. But I think that in many ways parents are afraid of their kids. I hear this all the time, particularly from dads. Well, I just don't want to mess my child up. I just don't want to do the wrong thing. And I think that a lot of times we just have to be bolder and say, my job is to train this little person and to teach this little person. And I'm going to teach them what I know and believe is right and true. And if they come to find that they don't believe it's right and true when they're 20, oh, well, we'll have discussions then. But at least until then, I'm going to I'm going to bring them along. Parents, I hope you're enjoying my conversation with Nathan Rittenhouse. We need to take a quick break, but don't go anywhere. We'll be right back. Friends, the fact is, taking care of your health is a commitment, and that can feel overwhelming. That's why I've been loving Omax 3 Ultra Pure Supplements. With Omax 3, you just need to do one little thing to experience big health benefits. Omax 3 Ultra Pure is the purest omega 3 supplement on the market containing nearly 95% high-quality omega-3s. They even do this cool thing called the freezer test challenge. If you freeze any other omega-3 supplement, it'll get cloudy. That's all the filler. Meanwhile, an Omax-3 soft gel remains clear. It's that pure. Better yet, omega-3s are amazing at alleviating joint pain and muscle soreness and making you feel your best post-workout. They can also improve focus and memory, boost cardiovascular health, and more. It just makes sense to take a daily omega-3 supplement. Try it for yourself. Omax 3 comes with a 60-day money-back guarantee, so you have plenty of time to really feel the Omax difference. Go to tryomax.com slash meg today to get a box of Omax 3 Ultra Pure for free. That's tryomax.com slash meg to get your free box of Omax 3. Try omax.com slash meg. Terms and conditions apply. 
For a lot of us, a delicious home-cooked meal is the ultimate luxury. It sounds simple, but with all the planning and knowledge required, we're lucky if we can pull it off once a week. Thankfully, Sunbasket makes it easy and convenient to cook meals at home, no matter how much experience you have in the kitchen. Because with Sunbasket, everything is pre-measured and easy to prep. You can get a healthy and delicious meal on the table in about 30 minutes. Plus, with 18 healthy options to choose from every week, including paleo, gluten-free, lean and clean, vegan, Mediterranean, family options, and more, it's suitable for many lifestyles. Easily cooked dishes like seared albacore tuna steaks with green beans and soft-cooked eggs, or steaks with chimichurri and harissa roasted sweet potatoes, all sourced from the best farms and suppliers to ensure that your produce is fresh and organic and your meats and seafood are responsibly raised. Friends, you know I love Sunbasket and I love to cook, but I'll tell you when that box arrives at my house, I am so excited because I know within a few short minutes, I'm going to have a great meal on the table. I love to cook and I love to eat and I love Sunbasket. Go to sunbasket.com slash Meg today to learn more and to get $35 off your first order. That's sunbasket.com slash Meg for $35 off sunbasket.com slash Meg. You talked to about um, social media and uh, you give a lecture on that. Talk to parents out there about social media. Should their kids engage? Should they not engage? Talk about the influence that social media has on kids. It's different than on boys and girls, but can you talk about that? Sure, sure. And just to follow up on your on the last statement you said there, I think it's important we realize we are teaching our children. Yes. Full stop. The only thing we have a choice in is what it is that we're teaching. And so to say, I'm not going to teach my child because it might ruin them, well, you you are teaching them something in that in that uh, viewpoint. But as it comes to social media, wow, this is a, a whole can of worms. Yes. And one of the reasons that this is really interesting, so I mean, I work for a Christian organization, but as far as the impact of social media and digital technology on our lives, this is not a Christian issue. This is a worldwide issue. And I have a great collection of articles from the New York Times, the NPR, to the Atlantic, all, all over the place. Everybody is recognizing, hey, what do we do about this? And, and these are the dangers, the pitfalls. But at the same time, we recognize we're addicted to it and we can't do anything about it. And so I try to function with, and I think it's a helpful line of reasoning to say, I'm not opposed to change, but I want to negotiate change. And that's a big difference of saying, hey, do I need this new app? Do I need this new device? Mm. I'm not saying it's good or bad right off the bat, but I want to think about what impact does that have on me, on my family, and on my personal relationships. So that's a big part of it. Then when we think about you know what types of guidelines are helpful, you can find all kinds of uh, psychological and sociological research out there. So many books are being written about the dangers. But I think it's helpful for me to think in kind of four big categories through this of saying, okay, are there physical dangers to some of this? And, and yeah, actually there are as far as our uh, dependency on, can we actually find our way to the doctor if our phone broke? There's a physical danger there and being overly dependent. Um, texting and driving certainly would be one. And then one you mentioned earlier is the whole issue of sleep and the percentage of people that sleep with their phones in their beds and then being consistently sleep deprived. And now we're, you know, lots of studies mm-hmm. looking at the long-term ramifications of sleeping with our phone. So this isn't even, you know, a spiritual Christian worldview issue. This is just saying, hey, this is how our bodies were created and how we function and we need to pay attention there. Mm-hmm. And so it's it's interesting. We would be concerned about our kids, you know, drinking and driving, but maybe we don't spend as much time thinking about the dangers maybe of our uh, dependency on our devices. Then we have the psychological impact. 
Um, and we recognize that the the youngest culture that's coming along is the unhappiest and most depressed culture, even though we have all the comforts of life. And you alluded to this at the beginning of um, intense loneliness, even though we're connected. And, of course, many books written about that and just saying, hey, just because we're connected electronically doesn't necessarily mm-hmm. mean that we feel like we have deeper community. And then another one is in the sociological side of it and just the ability to have uh, genuine friendships, to have good community, to function in those ways. Um, we're really seeing a lot of, <laughs> I mean, just just trying to have a, a conversation with somebody who shakes your hand, has good eye contact, mm-hmm. um, and has the confidence to have uh, quality uh, personal communications. And I just yesterday read a quote from a monk um, who said, when the light in most people's faces comes from the glow of the laptop, the smartphone, the television screen, we're living in the dark ages. And uh, that's an interesting connection because he said, you know, we're missing that the fundamental light meant to shine forth in a human person is through social interaction. And love can only come from that. Without real contact with other human persons, there is no love. And we've never seen a dark age like this one. And so I think that's the thing that I lament is that in many of these things, it's not that I'm like, oh, the sky is falling and all of this is bad and evil. Um, And so I'm not angry about it. I'm not fearful of it, but I'm sorrowful, actually, of what is being missed. And we talk about the fear of missing out. And so we always have to be on our phone to say, oh, no, you know, so-and-so is doing this and I don't want to miss out on that. But I have a fear of missing out on just real reality in the presence of my kids and taking in the beauty of the world around me and the the beauty of the intimate um, and committed f- relationships and friendships that I have. And so just to say, hey, everything that's marketed to us um, doesn't always serve the the purpose that it's intended. And then I'll quit rambling here, but one final one is to think what it does to us spiritually. And there's so much that we think about, you know, the internet does change the way that our brains work. And if I can't go more than five minutes without um, checking my phone, it's going to be very difficult for me to pray for 15 minutes mm. Uh, and so to think about how our brains are being reformatted there. But but really, it's this idea of, do I have the capacity to be fully present? And so I'm not saying no to all social media or digital technology. They're all things that I use. But I want to negotiate that change and think about, is this helping me be fully present with the people that I'm around, or is this distracting me? The, the fascinating thing about this, you asked, how are people responding to it, is that students, young people themselves, recognize that this is a problem. I was just speaking about this in Seattle a month or two ago. And at the end, I just asked, I said, hey, how many of you, these are like 10 to 16 year olds. I said, how many of you have taken proactive measures to limit the amount of uh, social media that you've used? And I was blown away by the number of people that raised their hand and said, hey, I'm so-and-so. I just deleted my Facebook account five months ago and it's been the best thing that ever happened to me. This is like a 12 year old. Yeah. Um, And so I think this is a question that'd be great for parents listening in to have with their kids. Yeah. We're not coming down hard on it, but just say, hey, I heard this podcast today. I was listening to this. Um, what do you think the impact of social media is having on your on your friends and the way that you interact with each other? And kids are extremely perceptive, and they're going to be able to give you a lot of insight onto that. So I can't give a, a slam dunk here the things you need to know. These are categories we need to think in. But I say, hey, have the conversation in person and uh, put the phone down and talk about it and enjoy what comes out of that. You know, I, I completely agree with you. And as you talk... Um, You know, there are two issues here, parental use of phones and kids' use of phones. And it's funny because parents will often complain about, you know, their kids wanting to be on social media, boys wanting to play video games, and so on and so forth. And I'll look at the parents and say, but what's your electronic use? Mm -hmm. Because they have done studies that shown that when a parent is eating with a child 
and they're on their phone, the interaction with the child is much more negative than if they're not on their phone. And that makes good sense. You know, you're reading your emails, you're texting somebody, this little child's eating next to you, mom, 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 mom. And you go, stop it, stop it. You know, of course, it's going to be more negative. But I think the bigger issue here, because I do think that increased electronic use whether it's a parent or whether it's the child, takes kids away from their parents and parents away from their kids. It ushers in uh, more autonomy, which I think makes kids very lonely. And, you know, the confusion is that kids feel, well, I, I'm much more connected, but they're really not. And so that w- that's my plea to parents with electronic use is you really can't be fully present with your kids. So you've got to make some hard and fast rules about uh, electronic use for yourself and for your kids in your home because it does lead to loneliness in kids and it makes kids feel that you're not there and you really don't want to pay attention to them. You know, there's some great resources for doing that. One that I personally use is called Rescue Time. It's free software I have on my laptop. And at the end of the week, you can sync it to your phone and everything. It gives you a little update pie chart and says, hey, you spent 40 hours typing in Word documents and six hours on YouTube. And it's really a shocking um, thing when you actually look at the real number there saying, I spent this amount of time. That's been something that's been transformative for me in thinking about how I use my time. But the real thing here, we say we're more connected, but the question is we're more connected to what? And... It, it struck me that I am part of the first generation that's seen more text messages than stars. Wow. Um, yeah. You know, when you start thinking through things, I've, you know, we substitute information. Now the source of information is no longer grandpa, but it's Google. So what type of information do we therefore have? Well, Google is great if I want to know the capital of a foreign country, but it's not great on relationship advice. Hey, should I marry this person? You know? Um, and so really when you limit the type of information, when you, when you think about the source of where you get your information is going to dictate the type of questions that you're allowed to ask. And so we're more connected to information. We're less connected to wisdom and relational thinking. And we just have to remember that this is uh, technology isn't the golden or the silver bullet that solves all of our problems, that there still is a real need for uh, awkward <laughs> uh, human relationships and interactions. Well, that's so satisfying to children. It meets their needs when they're face-to-face with parents. You know, I tell parents, if you really want to make your child feel loved, let them know you want their company. You know, if you're going to go do errands, ask them to jump in the car with you and say, I haven't talked to you in three days. Come on. I want to hear what's yeah. going on in your life. But to ask them questions and listen to the answers and pay attention, you know, that satisfies the deep needs in kids, not texting on your phones or playing games at the dinner table. Um, And again, I'm not trying to come down on parents. It's really a plea on behalf of kids who, who really want their parents' time and they ache for their parents' time. I read a study once that said that the average child spends 45 minutes a day with a parent and about 10 hours a day hooked to some type of screen, whether it's a phone, television, iPad, whatever. And you think about that and that what really is going to train your child, and you're absolutely right, kids need relationship. They need that the, the, the mysterious exchange of love and frustration and emotion that comes when you're face-to-face with somebody that only comes through you know facial expressions, um, body language, um, inflection, and tone of voice because that satisfies a deeper need in a child mm-hmm. than just the information. Yeah, and it's not just children. We all need that. <laughs> we all need so that, exactly. Exactly. We all need that. 
You know, they're, they're, uh, our, our time is coming to an end, Nathan, and I could sit here and talk to you for hours and hours and just sort of pick your brain. And, but can you talk to the mom or dad out there who's listening, who says, you know, I don't know what my kids are thinking. I'm not real good at this parenting thing. I don't know if I'm communicating meaning to my kids. I don't know. I, I don't know how to have a better relationship with them. I don't know how to, you know, to take them a little deeper in life. We have a fairly superficial relationship because I just sort of run them all around. Can you give them three or four things that they can really hang on to that will help them parent their kids in this really kind of upside down crazy world? Because it really is a very confusing time to parent your kids because as you said there's so many voices talking to parents saying you need to this you need to this you're not a good parent if you don't this and it it, it kind of makes them crazy so what are three or four things that you would really encourage parents to hang on to moving forward as they parent their kids tomorrow well that's a great question Um, and I wish I had like these are the best three Um, my wife and I really like a quote by Wendell Berry where he says parenthood is not an exact science but yeah. a vexed privilege and a blessed trial, absolutely <laughs> necessary and not altogether possible. Um, <laughs> I love that. Yeah, and I think that holds it together well. But when I think about these things, one of the things that's, I think, terrifying about having children is that you quickly see them reflecting you. Mm-hmm. And so it really drives you to introspection. And, and I think a theme that's been coming up in our conversation is how much this comes back to the parent's life is in getting that sorted out first, and then that will flow into the, uh, the child's life. And so one of those would be, I think, to ask yourself a question. It would be helpful, to, I think, to write this down and say, what is the purpose of our family? What is our family all about? To kind of have a mission statement, you know, is it to make as much money as possible so we can have great vacations and good retirement? Is it to love God, love our neighbors, take care of this good planet? What you put there and what drives your life and then allowing your children to say, this is what drives our family, this is what we're committed to, I think um, would be one of the, the foundational steps in doing that. Augustine said, you can't have close friendships without having a common purpose. And how much more so does that apply to families of saying, hey, this is the purpose of our family. Do we believe that our family is this cool little unit in this world that goes beyond just a a consumering, materialistic, economic unit, but we have a real purpose and we have a real opportunity to make a difference in our community? How are we going to structure that? And to actually write that down and say, this is what we want to be about would be the first thing that I would say. The second one is this. Parents all the time say, well, I would love to talk to my kid about such and such, but they don't want to ask me questions anymore. I think a practical step is to ask your kids good questions that you have, not ones that you're baiting them, but questions that you yourself are wrestling with or trying to figure out and show them how you're making decisions and coming to answers on questions. It's the difference between saying, hey, here's 20 bucks and saying, hey, here's how you earn 20 bucks. Um, Mm -hmm. Those are hugely different things. And so I can remember being just brought into conversations that were way over my head that I really appreciated as a child. One morning I came downstairs and my dad was reading his Bible and he said, hey, Nathan, here in Ephesians, uh, Paul is talking about the relationship between the Jews and the Gentiles. What do you think a passage like this could say for us as we contemplate racial reconciliation in our country um, in this time? I'm thinking, Dad, I'm 14. It's 7 in the morning. I just want a bowl of cereal. Uh, But I did go... Uh, yeah, I did go back and think about it. And later at the end of the day, I said, hey, Dad, you know, I was thinking about that. Um, and so, and then later I heard him speaking on that topic and, and he nailed it. And so for him to allow me into that conversation to say, hey, you as a young person have something to contribute to the ideological formation of me. I'm still growing and wrestling with things and being open and vulnerable about that does not undermine your authority. Uh, if anything, it, it kind of shores up and says, hey, this person is being honest with me. 
about um, about life. So I think asking good questions and and taking uh, questions seriously, I almost never say because I said so. Uh, to the 4,000 why questions a day that our two-year-old asks us um, to take those seriously. I would rather give an answer that he doesn't understand that is true rather than give an answer that he does understand that's flippant um, and allow him to grow into that. So uh, we're we're going with that. And so I think there's just a lot of beauty to asking good questions, affirming questions, say, wow, that is a great question. I've wondered that too. Here's how I think about that. And then to come up, uh, a subset of that would be to come up with a list of resources and say, where are good places that when my teenager asks me a question about sexuality, I can go to? So, I mean, I work for our ZIM. That's one of the things we do. Our line is helping the thinker believe and helping the believer think, um, answering one question at a time, answering the person. And so there are just tremendous resources and books out there for doing that. And then the third one, as far as really grounding a child and finding meaning, value, and faith in this world is, uh, and this one takes sacrifice. We have to suffer to prioritize here, but actually be being connected to a church or a, a local community uh, that serves as a plausibility structure for showing this is what real life looks like. And so if you can find a group of people that's economically diverse, multi-ethnic, multi-generational, this is a great place for young people to say, hey, here's not just how my parents are doing life, but this is how all of these other people that I look up to and respect are doing life. And it gives us a bigger and a broader vision of what's possible in the world. And so it's hard to be committed to something like that sometimes, but that type of community is going to be more important than the soccer game on some Sunday mornings. And in the long run, it's going to be an investment worth making, though it'll be difficult. So I would say those big, big uh, purpose. Can we have a, a vision for our family? Can we ask good questions, be open in that and teach our children how to think, not just what to think? And then can we plug them into community so that they can see ideas in action? It's not enough for an idea just to be a good idea. We need to see that it actually works. And so those are three that popped into my mind when you asked the question. You know, those are outstanding, and I love it. And it sort of takes us back to where we started, which which is the asking of the why and how important it is to ask why. Like your father asked, he wanted your opinion on that passage in Ephesians. And as a pediatrician, I sit and I I see you as a 14-year-old boy and what that does to you. It makes you feel important. It makes you feel smart. It makes you feel feel uh, valued because because your dad asked you a question about something you didn't understand which communicated he thought you might be able to understand it and the love and that you know on, on so many levels just asking an important question and having your dad draw you in shaped your identity so beautifully and we don't do that with our kids I also like your idea about community and, and, and church and shared meaning and shared purpose. It was interesting. I was taking our son, our youngest child, uh, to college um, one year back to college, and we were chatting in the car, and he said, so what are you going to do tonight? I said, I'm going to give a lecture to some parents. He said, what are you going to say? And I said, I don't know. What should I say? I mean, mm. I said, you've grown up. What should I say? First of all, he said, tell them to behave I said, what do you mean by that? He said, Mom, sometimes parents act younger than high school kids do. And I said, ooh, okay. And then he said, talk to them about the value of their friends in their kids' lives. And it was very eye-opening to me. He said, I always appreciated that you and Dad exposed us to a lot of people, adults, who we felt 
we had good relationships with who thought like you and affirmed what you were. So we didn't think you were so crazy. <laughs> right, you, right, right. Yeah. Because, because it was a shared meaning, I mean, and a, and a shared experience. And I think that's very, very powerful for kids. And it does work because my son told me it did when he hit his 20s. And that was kind of, uh, that was really fun. You will find, Nathan, as your kids get older, they'll, uh, and they hit their 20s, they give you the list, you know, the list of the things you did well and the list of the things that you didn't do very well. <laughs> And you just sort of say, okay, thanks. But I love the idea. So if you, if, if, if parents write down, this is the purpose of our family. These are our family values. These are our family goals. This is how we're going to treat each other in a family. It doesn't make one kid feel isolated over the other. So in other words, nobody in the family says shut up to each other. Nobody in the family is going to behave this way. Nobody in the family is going to kind of just go off and do their own thing. And to articulate that to your kids, that pulls them in and that makes them feel much more part of a very important unit. So I love that. You said earlier something that's very important here. And you said, you know, kids, kids can work and kids love to work. And man, that is so true. Um, But they love to work and be part of what I'm working on. Yes. And be part of the bigger picture. And so when you make that family mission statement, the child then says, hey, I went and helped so-and-so rake their leaves this afternoon because they broke their wrist because that's what my family does. Yes. And so they get a sense of not just serving the other, but feeling like they're a part of working within the mission of the family. Family identity, it's so important because it's so affirming to the child and it makes them feel when they're out there and they're hearing crazy ideas at school or they're hearing their friends do something kind of crazy, they think, well, my family doesn't do that. You know, my family doesn't believe in that. And that makes them feel good. It's not them bucking peer pressure alone. It's not them listening. And I think that many times parents feel as their kids get older that they don't want to be part of the family. They want to be part of a pack of peers, which really isn't true. Kids don't want that. They want to stay connected to their family. You know, one or two friends is enough. They don't need to be part of 10 and sort of run wild with a pack. Nathan, this has just been a wonderful conversation. I can't wait to talk to you in 15 years when your kids are grown up and refresh your memory on what you said to me and ask how well it worked because I know it'll work beautifully with your own kids. Well, it's been a a lot of fun to talk to you. I I have a whole lot of thoughts in all of these categories and we're uh, hitting the tops of the icebergs here. But I hope that there's something here that can be an encouragement and stimulate good thought and good conversations within families. You know, and I know it can be because our plea to our parents is to take their kids where kids really want to go, which is deeper. And kids don't want to live in their own little world. They want to be part of the family. They want parents to engage them. They want to think and work and um, and enjoy and wrestle. So thank you for giving us so much insight, Nathan. Certainly. It's been a pleasure to speak with you. So friends, now let's get social. Today, I have a question from Shannon who says, Hello, Dr. Meg. I have eight kids, ages eight to 25. For Christmas, they each buy for each other and for mom and dad, even if it's a small handmade gift or something from the dollar store. They give lots of gifts to us, some needs and some wants, but many things to open on Christmas morning. I do try hard to keep it pretty fair money-wise between my children. This Christmas, however, neither my 16-year-old daughter nor my 11-year-old daughter gave me anything. 
They didn't say anything on Christmas morning. Now it's late January and I feel kind of silly. I'm not even sure what to say to them because I don't want it to be about buying things. But I work so hard on preparing for Christmas for so many people that it does hurt. They did give their dad gifts. I would love your advice. Well, Shannon, here's my recommendation for you. First of all, I think it's very important as mothers that we understand that we train our kids how to treat us. So we train our kids to talk to us respectfully, to attend to our feelings, not to parent us, but to be aware of our feelings, whether they make us upset or they make us hurt or angry, whether they push our buttons. And it's perfectly legitimate for us as mothers, when our kids hurt our feelings, to say, you can't say that in our home because that really hurts my feelings. You are training your girls and your sons, your sons and your daughters, how to treat women and how to treat their mother. And you're also training them on how to treat their father. So in short, you have a responsibility to teach your kids how to treat you with respect because you as a mom deserve respect. You have a place of respect and authority in your home, and it's right and good that you expect your children to treat you that way. Of course, Christmas isn't about giving gifts and buying things or how much money anybody spends. But in your home, if your tradition is to express love to one another and gratitude and appreciation by giving a gift or something very small, it doesn't matter. If that's your tradition, then it is right and proper for you to expect that your kids show you appreciation and gratitude at Christmas time. So I not only think you have a responsibility to tell your daughters how you feel, I think that you have an obligation to do so because you're training them on how they should expect to be treated when they're mothers and they're adults. This is what I recommend you to do. I would tell your two daughters who forgot to give you Christmas gifts, and make no mistake, they know they forgot to give you Christmas gifts. And they're probably very embarrassed and they just don't want to say anything. So you talking to them about the fact that they didn't give you anything is going to be a relief for them. Go to your daughters and say, I need to talk to you girls. Sit down at lunchtime, a time when it's very calm, um, when nobody's upset. Make a point of getting together and say, girls, you know, I noticed that you didn't give me a Christmas gift and I I don't know exactly why. Maybe it was an oversight. Maybe you didn't have money. I understand. But I just need to tell you that I did notice it and it did hurt my feelings. You know I'm not materialistic and I don't care about a bought gift. But even if you would next Christmas write me a letter, that would be a gift enough. But just to show some appreciation because it is hard as a mom. I work really hard to take good care of you kids and our home. And I take my job and responsibility as a mom really seriously. So I just wanted you to know that it did hurt my feelings. I forgive you. But just in the future, I would appreciate it if you would try harder to remember. And be prepared for any response. They may get angry. They may cry. Probably they'll tell you they're very sorry and it won't happen again. And again, reiterate to them, it's not about the money, but it is about the fact that they are responsible for hurting your feelings and you have a responsibility to tell them that you hurt your feelings. And then also, 
as a mother, you want to command some respect in your home. You're not being silly. You're not being self-centered. You are really trying to teach your daughters how to rectify a situation when they made a mistake. And as I said earlier, I think you're going to find that your daughters are going to feel very relieved when you talk to them and talk about the elephant in the room. So friends, remember, I love answering your questions. So please keep sending them in to me. You can always email me any parenting question to askmeg at megmeekermd.com. Again, that's askmeg at megmeekermd.com. I want to thank my wonderful guest, Nathan Rittenhouse, and encourage you to go online to RZIM Ministries and listen to some more of his lectures. He's a wonderful lecturer. I'd like to now recap my points to ponder. One, write a family mission statement and share that mission statement with your kids. Two, share experiences with your kids. All American children are lonely because our way of life causes our kids to be lonely. So make sure you share experiences with your kids. And three, tell your kids why they're alive. So until next time, parents, remember, great kids are raised, not born. Hey, this is Bobby, producer of Meg Meeker's Parenting Great Kids podcast. We hope you've enjoyed listening to episode 48, Connecting Better with Your Kids. And thanks to you, Dr. Meg's Parenting Revolution has grown to over a million downloads. You can like Dr. Meeker on Facebook and follow her on Twitter and Instagram at MegMeekerMD. As a reminder, go to MegMeekerMD.com and sign up for her newsletter for giveaway opportunities and updates. And don't forget to share the podcast, write us a review, and click subscribe so you won't miss an episode. 